0: Hey, we're back. Welcome to Retirement Plan Playbook. We have an exciting show for everyone today. Today we're going to talk about understanding your risk tolerance and for me, I think risk tolerance comes in many different forms. It's not just investments, but it could come in financial planning decisions that you could be making both in the short term and long term. I'm excited to get your guys' opinion on this because I think, you know, all of us probably have some different opinions on risk tolerance. So for me, I'm Brent Pasqua. I'm host and founder of RPA Wealth Management. I'm here with Matthew Thiel, certified financial planner, and Joshua Wintersweik, certified financial planner. Guys, how was your last couple of weeks?
1: Um, it was good. You know, coming off Fourth of July, a little tired today. Not gonna lie. Um, but happy to be here doing the podcast with you guys. Good, yeah. Good Fourth of July weekend. Um,
2: it was a lot of lot of fun. Got the um day after off to relax a little bit from the partying of uh, fourth of july but uh, a lot of fun we played a lot of golf huh yeah we did we played some golf that was fun it was a little hot out there but yeah it was we we had a lot of
1: fun
0: yeah i mean like a lot of the conversations i've heard you both have over the last several days has all been about golf like you guys are just all ramped up in golf
1: well i was i was on a break um because of the baby right but but now she's getting a little older and so i'm able to get on the course a little more than i was is that why you're retired well, I'm tired because it's probably the fourth. But then, yeah, she woke up uh, in the middle of the night last night. It's that dad life, huh?
2: Yeah, it is. But the the golf, yes, I, I had Matt took a little bit of a hiatus because of uh, his baby. But it's it's nice to have him back. He's he's like fully back into the the big golf guys group.
0: There's conversations around here about you guys getting me out there on the golf course, and uh, it's a tough battle always because I really don't want to be out there, <laughs> but. You know, I've got to get out there at some point, so maybe I'll get the clubs ready.
2: Maybe we'll have to, like, buy him a little welcome to golf gift. Maybe that'll pump him up.
1: I don't even know what to get. I (laughs) don't even know what to get the guy to get him out there.
0: Well, my son is in golf camp right now, and he has three weeks of it throughout all of summer, and he's going to be on his second week, So, and he's really enjoying it. So if there's any motivation that I have to be playing golf, it'll be to be playing with him and getting out there and, and you know, not playing bad in front of him. So.
1: Actually, that's the play. So what we need to do is we need to talk to his son and bribe him with like Star Wars toys or something <laughs> yeah. and offer him Star Wars toys if he asks his dad to go to the golf course. <laughs> yeah, and then play around the golf. Because yeah. I'll play with, with your son So uh, and you.
0: That'll yeah. be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see him progress. He's having fun with it. All right, so let's get into the hot take headlines and get into the news. Robin Hood, the popular millennial trading app, has filed to go public, which obviously they're a tremendously controversial company over the last several months. The company is expected to be valued at $40 billion or more and is planning on allocating 35% of its IPO shares to its client space. What's your take on this?
1: So first of all, there's a lot to unpack here. I think it's really cool that they're allocating some of their IPO to their clients. Um, that's something that we, we haven't really seen before, done before. Um, so that should be good. I'm not quite sure how they're going to work through the allocation process. Like if they're going to get to the bigger accounts or the more active accounts, the accounts that make them the most money, not sure on that. But as for Robinhood going public, um, I actually think, um, you know, it kind of might signal a a short-term top in this meme stock individual investor craze. The Coinbase IPO seemed to serve as the top in the crypto market. And then also when you go back, I believe it was um, the Facebook IPO served as the top in the 2011 market, I believe. So again, could happen. Um, It's very overvalued. I would not buy the shares myself. But yeah, looking forward to see it come public. It's interesting. There's just so much
2: like controversy and, and kind of aftermath from like the January debacle with the GameStop situation. They're still going through so many civil lawsuits, um, investigations about that whole situation, and they're still going public just because the market for them to go public is so good right now. <laughs> but I, I kind of agree with you, Matt. It's an interesting time for them. It's going to kind of be fun to watch this unfold. Um, but I do like that they're offering, you know, the IPO shares to their consumers. Pretty cool for a young investor to get in on the IPO. So that, that part of it, just that variable is, I think,
1: is a uh, a cool thing that they're doing.
2: Do you think the people that are trading on their app actually want their stock?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, they, from my understanding, you know, you go on those Reddit boards I mean, they, you know, want any stock you can get. And then also with Robinhood, you kind of get like free stock, I guess, when you refer somebody, like they let you pick a stock. So, I mean, obviously you'll have to pay for their shares, but if you get them at the IPO price, you're going to get a nice pop.
0: Now, are, do you think the way they transact the, their own stock on their platform is going to be different than how they transact? they trade stock with other stocks in the market?
1: Yeah, that's what I was saying about the allocation process. I'm not sure how they're going to allocate it to their, to their client base. Like if you have to kind of like opt in, say, yeah, I want this and I want, want 10 shares or whatever. Or if they're going to allocate it based on, you know, who's made them the most money, like their, their larger client base, I'm not sure. It's going to be
2: interesting to see because even through this, you can see that other companies are actually offering through Robinhood IPO shares for their their clients. So it's just going to be interesting how this kind of shakes up the industry with offering IPO shares to retail investors through a single custodian, let's say like Robinhood. So interesting time. Yeah,
0: I think it's just, uh, there's such a sediment of love-hate relationship right now with Robinhood. People either love it or they hate them because of everything that happened.
2: But they've doubled like users with funded accounts. So it's still interesting. I mean, just over a year that they're, you know, they do have some good growth um, over this last year, even with, you know, the, the January debacle that went on. Yeah, it'll be fun to see what happens with this IPO. Uh, Chinese ride-sharing company Didi
0: went public last week, raising $4.4 billion on the New York Stock Exchange. Later in the week, China told the company to stop accepting new customers and to remove itself's app from the app stores. At that point then, the stock price fell from $18 to $11 in a matter of days. What is going on here and why is this happening?
1: Yeah, so this is a pretty wild story. I'm not, I'm not really fully sure what's going on. I don't think we know all the answers yet. Um, but essentially, Didi is the, you know, the Uber of China, right? It was a highly anticipated IPO. Um, it had a lot of interest from retail investors, and they came public to a big pop, like how IPOs have been happening. And then a few days later, kind of China pulled the rug on them and is basically not really allowing them to operate. So you know, if they can't operate, they can't make money. And so the stock started to tank. Um, it, it's now coming out after the fact that it seems like the Chinese regulators told uh, DD to halt their, IP, their U.S. IPO. And they decided to go along with it to raise that said $4.4 billion. So from a, you know, a legal standpoint, I'm sure we're going to see some lawsuits. I mean, tons of investors have lost money here. And, and this is going to you know, really end up being a, most likely a bust of a, a Chinese IPO. And it seemed like reading more about
2: this story, and again i'm I'm just starting to to dive deeper into it as well, but it seems like the Chinese government also this isn't the first time they've done that they they don't really like the Chinese companies going public in foreign countries. it's not their their favorite um and it seems like that's kind of the consequence of them doing that is that they could fall under the scrutiny of the Chinese government so it is going to be interesting but it did um, do well. USA investor or American investors um, jumped on the stock because they liked the potential growth of the stock. Um, But that's the risk. And in talking about risk tolerance, I think it's a good segue because there's one type of risk too: political risk, right? Yeah. Does this kind of scream some of the challenges that Alibaba has had in the past as well?
1: Um, Yeah, I think so. Alibaba is an interesting case, right? Because they're China's largest company but essentially, the founder went missing, Jack Ma, for uh, many, many months. He, he wasn't seen. And there's rumors flying around that the Chinese government had him killed. I mean, he's since resurfaced. Um, but essentially, it seems like the Chinese government is really cracking down on their internet companies and their internet company founders and trying to not let them get the same power that like a Jeff Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg have, have here in America. Uh, great point.
2: Yep.
0: All right. Well, let's get into the retirement planning corner. On today's show, we're going to talk about risk tolerance and risk capacity. And I think what's important about this topic is that risk tolerance doesn't just come in a form of how much risk are you willing to accept in your portfolio if the market goes up and down. Risk tolerance comes in all different forms because we're always making financial decisions, whether you're thinking about buying a house in the next couple of years or you're thinking about retiring 20 years from now. Those all have different risk factors that are involved with it. So we're going to get into some of those today, and we're going to talk about some of those details. And then maybe we'll get into a little bit about, you know, why you shouldn't go after companies or start working with companies that just market towards risk tolerance, because that could, be, that could scream something else that they're probably not going to
1: help you with. Matt, so what is risk tolerance? So risk tolerance is pretty easy um, to break down if you look at it just this way. It's how much risk can you tolerate? And you could look at it from a portfolio, and you can make it more simple and say, okay, well, how much ups and downs can I take, right? Like how much is my daily swing, how much is my monthly swing in the portfolio, and what can I essentially stomach? Because the one thing you don't want when you're an investor is those sleepless nights where you're you know, worried about how much your portfolio is gonna drop if the market's crashing, um, you know, the tossing and turning in bed. And that's what risk tolerance is. What
2: is then risk capacity?
1: Great question. Risk capacity, unlike tolerance,
2: is the amount of risk that you can afford to take or you, you must take, right? So when we're looking at reaching your financial goals, this is where risk capacity comes in because there's amount of risk that you'll probably need to take to reaching your financial goals. So unlike tolerance, it's just not about what you think you can take, it's more about that ability of risk that you can actually take.
0: So when you think about risk tolerance and risk capacity, I mean, where does this really put you when you're thinking about your portfolio? And like making a decision about how much of that you can actually accept.
1: Well, I think one thing that most people get really confused on is the tolerance to capacity. Right? So there, there's actually two areas of the risk like we're talking about. And a lot of them will say, like, hey, I don't you know, want to tolerate any risk. I don't want to lose any money. It's like, well, okay, but like you actually need to take some risk because we need your money to grow. Like, And you don't need your money for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So, you know, you could take risk. You could go for the ups and downs, like who really cares? From a portfolio standpoint, what we're looking at is really, you know, what's the time horizon? How long do you need the money? You know, for most people, it's actually multiple years, right? We're talking five, 10, 15, 20, 35 years or more. Um, How much income do you need from that money um, when it's time? And then what other assets do you have available on your balance sheet um, if the portfolio drops? So when you think about, what somebody is
0: actually willing to accept based on some of these factors, how do you come to the determination of what someone is comfortable accepting? And Because there's a psychological issue here, right? Because if you say, for example, uh, like portfolio risk-wise, someone is, based on all factors, willing to accept a 20% decline, and anything above that, they might panic. You almost get a sense that if it was down 10 or 15%, they're going to panic anyway because they still have a top panic of 20%. So, like, how do you come to the determination of really what someone is willing to accept?
2: I think that it's the combination of the risk tolerance and the risk capacity. You have to use both tools because, again, just going through that process of understanding what your tolerance is isn't the only variable. So, yes, you might be only willing to accept 20%, but actually, after analyzing, like Matt had said, kind of your situation, your time horizon, and, you know, really quantifying what you need what type of risk you need to reaching your goals. You really can't even answer that question fully by just figuring out what your risk tolerance is.
0: I mean, how critical is financial planning to helping determine risk tolerance and risk capacity?
1: It's extremely critical. I mean, you can't you can't have one without the other. Um, you need to build your plan, and by building that plan, that will you know help you determine what your risk tolerance actually is and what your risk capacity is.
2: But I also think that like the finance industry and investment
1: salesmen focus on just tolerance. Correct. Yeah, because they want to scare you. They want to say, oh, look, you know, the market drops by 40%. Your portfolio is going to lose $400,000 and you're not going to be able to retire. So buy this annuity.
2: Not, not only that, even just the mutual fund salesman, you know, it's standard deviation. We're looking at sharp ratios, right? Um, downside capture. And they're of... using all of these like big terms to like, you know, scare investors almost or lure them in. And it can not even be to scare, it could also be used as a tool to say, you need a higher rate of return. And these tools are going to give that, but it's still using that risk tolerance side of things, not necessarily like that risk capacity side.
0: Yeah, I get the sense just in, in the experience that I've had that you can't really understand what your risk tolerance and risk capacity is unless you do full financial planning. Because what it leads to is you having a clear understanding of what your objectives and goals are and what your projections are about to be. And if you visualize it and you see it and you can understand it, then you could say, okay, well, because I know where I'm at and where things are heading, then I can accept more risk and I know I'm not to panic. And we don't get in these times where we were March 23rd of last year, And people are panicking and wanting to sell it in the market. That doesn't really happen if you have clear goals and objectives.
2: Yeah. And I think uh, from, you know, even what you're saying, and I definitely agree, but like having that more proactive approach, right? You're preparing for upside and downside. And it's not just about talking about how much risk you can take. It's more preparing and being proactive with that financial plan like you had mentioned to making you feel more comfortable regardless of what happens in the stock market.
0: Right, And and to summarize that too, I mean, the worst thing a person could have done last year on March 23rd was sell their portfolio. And it was time for people to, to be of concern. Yeah. And that's reactive. Yeah. So how should someone over 50 who is starting to think about retirement, how should they think about risk and, you know, because that is a somewhat of a more uncomfortable time. You're getting closer, another step closer to retirement. You need to depend on that money. How do you evaluate risk capacity at that age time?
1: Yeah, so I, I think for someone who's over 50, um, the, the first thing you should do with your risk is you need to have a plan built out. You need that retirement plan. Because unfortunately, what ends up happening is you might not get to choose your retirement your retirement might get chosen for you. And you might say, well, what does that mean? And that means that as you age, you become less desirable to the company you work for and you face a significant layoff risk. And sometimes, um, you know, if you don't have the skills that are attractive to your current company, it might be hard to re-enter the labor force at the salary you were making. So that's why we always recommend You know, someone who's in their early fifties start to do a retirement plan and figure out exactly what they need. And from there, once we do that plan, then we could say, okay, well, maybe the assets should be a little bit more conservative. Your job's unstable, or you know, maybe we could stay aggressive because your job is very stable. So it just depends.
0: I think too, where someone you you know, you have to be very careful, right? Because at age fifty, you're you're now at the closest last stretch to retirement, right? But you also probably have the highest earning potential that you've ever had in your life. You're at that last 10 years. And then your investments, more than likely, are the largest that they've ever been. And if you say, okay, well, I'm only 10 years away from retirement, so I'm going to reduce risk in a time where you should be probably maximizing contributions, maximizing growth, because you have the most money. I mean, you're on the home stretch. You want to try to double your money, at least in that last stretch that's what's going to take you home into retirement. But then you don't have the risk tolerance or risk capacity for it, because you know, you're only 10 years until retirement, that could lead to a major deficiency in retirement.
2: I think you make a great point. Yes, it absolutely could. But on the other hand, if you've determined like, yes, your risk capacity, you need to take more risk, but your risk tolerance says, you know, you're taking less risk than you actually need to, then what do you need to do? You probably need to save more. And that's not like a a fun conversation either to have, because if you're not willing to accept the risk that you need to reach your goals, you have to compensate for that deficiency like you talked about. And most likely that's either working longer or saving more. So we we need risk to helping reach that goal um, and not having to work longer, save more. Um, and not rely on some of the tools that'll help us get there sooner.
0: Yeah, and I think you said what you said is critical because you're talking about trying to hit very specific marks, right, at very specific times because now you're determining, okay, I'm going to need X amount of dollars by the time I retire, and it's either I'm going to need to have an X amount of return, hopefully, or I need to save more money. There's a lot of projections in that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and you have to build the financial plan that we had talked about to actually even understand that, right? It's not just a general number that we get a lot of times of like, how much should I have to retire? Can you tell me by just you know, asking you, what's the general amount that people need? It's not that general. It's very specific. So let's take it down a decade and say, okay, someone
0: at age 50 is in this position, and that's very clear. But now what about someone who's actually in their 40s?
1: Um so this is an interesting age and, and what I found with working with clients who are, you know in their 30s to 40s is a lot of times they might be saving for more specific of a goal. And uh, most people right here in their 50s they pretty much have one goal left and that's retirement. They might have minor goals like oh we want to buy a retirement house or we want to move out of California and you know move to one of the low tax states. Those are minor goals your main goal is retirement. Someone who is in their 30s and 40s, like they, you know, there's a lot of different goals. Oh, I want to save for my kid's college. Uh, I want to purchase a new house or a bigger house. I want to change careers and start a business. So those kind of goals can all be planned for and all the investments and how we take risk are all different depending on the goal.
0: So what you're basically saying though is that if someone is 30 or 40 years old and they're contributing into their 401k, How would their risk tolerance in their 401k be different than the savings that they're putting aside to buy a house?
1: Yeah. So for the savings for the house, you're probably going to want to be a little bit more conservative. You're not going to want to try and shoot the lights out, especially if you're close. I mean, if you're far away, you know, you know, you need 250 and you have 10 and you're putting, you know, a thousand a month away for this house. We know we could be really aggressive because it's actually unfortunately going to take you a while to save for that 250. But as for the retirement, you should be ultra aggressive. You know, 100% stocks, 90% stocks, and you're not going to need it for 30, 40 years. You can't even touch it. I think what's important, though, is actually,
2: you know, writing down your goals and tying that time horizon to the goal. Like you talked about, you know, that down payment for your house. If it's a five-year projection that you're going to hit that down payment for the house or a three-year projection, we even have to ask ourselves, like, should any risk actually really be taken? right? Is it more risky to tie money that you're going to put towards a down payment to a home if the time horizon is only three years, right? So, uh, I think that's a really important point to make even for anyone under 40 or or 30 is not everything has to be the same risk tolerance or capacity. It has to actually link up to that time horizon of that specific goal. So, when you
0: do planning for people in this age group, how do you end up with the Uh,
2: recommendations and targets for each of these goals. Really, it is just having this open conversation and really determining what your ultimate goals are, right? And separating them between short, you know, let's just say middle and long-term goals and saying, okay, well, let's create uh, even a visual of these goals, separate them by the the time horizon, and then let's actually start allocating cash flow and capital towards those goals. Um, And that's just kind of a a basic start so you can get a good understanding of when you're going to need the money and how much you're going to need.
1: I think the biggest mistake that kind of that under 40, under 30 crowd does is they actually have too many like smaller micro goals um, compared to retirement. So they're doing their retirement. They're saving a little, uh, but they're also trying to put away for their kids savings. They're trying to pay off student debt and they're not doing it all efficiently, right? Because there's too much money going into every bucket. Um, so it's kind of like what they need help is also prioritizing those goals and then figuring out, okay, what, where should I be sending my excess cash flow to? That's a great point. And and right now what I'm even seeing a lot
2: of is, you know, clients, younger clients having too many pots open, like you had talked about, right? We're, we're, we're buying crypto, we're buying stocks, we're putting in 529 plans, but then there's this pot of debt behind us. Like you really should that were that allocation of cash flow be going. So I think that's a great point um that you make is prioritizing kind of cash flow and, and the goal.
0: Yeah, and then when you put time horizons on each of those goals, I mean it allows you to earmark and have an understanding of what the risk tolerance is, which, you know, at the end of the day, like we keep going back to March twenty third, I mean, if you were so reactive in that time of life, like that could throw off all of your goals. And if you were clearly laid out I think
2: Seems like you would avoid that because you know exactly what the plan says you should do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good test, right, for a lot of people. Look, how did you feel on March 23rd last year?
1: Yeah, And and just to let most people know, like most retirees should have been pretty scared during that time, which is a normal feeling. And then actually most young people should have been extremely excited and, you know, ready to move money from the savings account or the retirement accounts and get, get more aggressive, right, because their time horizon is so long. So it doesn't matter if they lose money temporarily.
0: Yeah. I mean, most people um, who are under 40 hadn't seen an opportunity like that since 2008. And that was 13 years ago. And most people, a lot of that age group was probably still too young to even know
2: at that point how to take advantage of the market. Exactly. And that mindset to me just isn't isn't there yet. Like with housing, it is with Americans. Like when the housing market drops, everyone wants to buy a house, right? stock market drops, not enough young people are going out there saying I need to buy more stock or invest more, right? So um, I think that was just a good test and a good tool to talk about going forward of we need to seek those opportunities too, especially in the market.
0: Uh, Outside of portfolio management, what are some risks people face in their financial plans?
1: So there's quite a few. I, I think the one that gets underlooked a lot as well, especially with younger people, um, and, and most people actually don't even know how to quantify this amount, but the uh, life insurance, right? So understanding how much life you need, um, how to purchase it, when, when you want that policy to expire if you go the term route, and how that should be used as a general tool in a financial plan um, gets really underestimated by people. I think another you know, risk is going to be just your overall health. Um, you
2: know, I know we, we've we talked about health on our podcast a little bit before, but I think it is a really big risk, right? Not only when we're thinking about medical bills, but just lack of being able to work, right? Earning income, stuff like that. So without your health, like we have talked about, no wealth, right? So that is a big risk to your financial plan um, and just your future.
0: Yeah, again, it goes back to financial planning. The detailed planning will help you understand what your biggest risks are financially based on different variables of things that we can't predict happening in life. And it will help you uh, stay on target to make sure if any of those do happen, that, you know, you could sustain yourself and you could financially live comfortable and your family's not going to be as impacted financially.
1: Kind of interesting on the health, I'm going to take this podcast a little off topic, but I heard this framed and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So essentially, like, let's say you drink like a Coca-Cola a day, right? We know like a Coke is a very sugary drink. There's lots of chemicals and pretty much things that aren't bad for you, but maybe you like the way it tastes. And the Coke is pretty cheap, right? It's $1.50, $2, depending on where you're at. So, you know, it's a cheap way. Maybe you go to McDonald's, you, you know, get like an $8 meal and you're on your way. But really what you're doing is you're costing yourself more dollars in the future. Because right. we know if you eat like that, you, you drink those kind of beverages, you're setting yourself up for health problems down the road. It's the same way like if you're a smoker, right? We know a smoker, you're probably going to get lung cancer, and it's the same with eating poorly. You're most likely going to have some kind of health-related issues in your later years, diabetes, um, you know, heart attack, what have you, heart disease. And that's going to cost you a lot in future medical bills. So just an interesting way to think about that.
0: Right. So what you're saying is it's costing you now and it's going to cost you even more later.
1: It's costing you less now, but it's going to cost you a lot of dollars later. Yeah.
2: No, I totally agree. And we can even see it. You know, people like you had talked about, I think another risk that we're going to talk about here is like career risk. And you've already mentioned that, Matt, especially if you're over 50. But, you know, let's say that you are laid off and it's before you can collect Medicare, right? At 65. Yep. You know, being more unhealthy is going to cost you just not even if you needed surgery or anything else, right? Or Or treatment. Just the fact that you're living a more unhealthy lifestyle is going to equate to you paying higher in medical insurance premiums if you do or let go before 65 from your job if you're over 50. So just to kind of give an example of, you know, what we've seen that were that's true. So just a great point. I see a lot of
0: financial planning companies, and a lot of times I think they're associated with people that sell annuities and insurance products, put on their website, oh, come take our risk tolerance assessment test. How valuable are those to someone to helping them determine risk tolerance and risk capacity? Or is that just a ploy of marketing for them to get a call to action so they could try to sell somebody something?
1: Um, So it is marketing, obviously, if it's put up on their website and kind of branded that way. You know, it could be valuable, right? You could learn something from it. You could learn a little bit about your personality. I've taken a few of them in, in my career. We've actually never used risk tolerance software here. And... The reason why is I feel like most people are intelligent who are coming into our office and hiring us to be their planners. and by like question four, you could kind of game the test. and what I mean is if you want to have an aggressive portfolio, you could kind of figure out what's going on and game the questions towards okay I'm going to get spit out and aggressive or if you want a conservative portfolio, you could game it that way as well. Like very rarely do I see someone take one of those and they don't it wasn't what they thought they were so if they told me they were conservative it usually came out being yeah conservative If they told me they were aggressive it came out as very aggressive
0: yeah and i think that a lot of the questions too there's um so much subjectivity to the timing of where we're at in the market or where they're at in their life and that that is constantly changing I feel like it has never been a very valuable tool to give someone a a risk assessment because to me, it's more about financial psychology than it is about risk assessment. If someone's going to panic at 15%, they're going to panic at 20%. How are you going to build a portfolio that is determined that, hey, they can accept 20% risk and not 15% or vice versa? It just has never seemed as a valuable tool that has helped people.
2: And I think it is that understanding that Financial behavior more and asking the right questions and really understanding your client is going to be a lot more valuable than them filling out a questionnaire through software right are they really even being open and honest like does those goals come out does that really emotion and that feeling come out um, I think and asking the right questions with clients is going to achieve that a lot better than a you know a questionnaire through a computer
0: yeah the process of financial planning too and laying out goals and earmarking money for very specific goals has much more help to financial behavior um, than any type of risk assessment test that you take in the beginning when you meet an advisor and then all of a sudden they sell you some annuities in a portfolio after that
2: yeah yeah definitely
0: all right let's get into the last part of the show uh i know we're on rpa recommends uh who wants to start with uh a recommendation today
1: uh, i guess i'll go first um with a non-recommendation um don't try and buy a car right now absolutely miserable process been trying to do one myself for my wife we need an suv it's very difficult to buy a car um we've already known that car dealers are that are um in general pretty pretty scummy right Um, difficult to work with difficult to work with okay it's even more difficult now getting the runaround from every toyota dealer in southern california Truly an awful experience. Hopefully, I'll have an update next for the next podcast. Uh, but don't try and buy a car if you don't really need one right now. Doesn't it just make you want to buy a Tesla because their process is
0: just like, I want these features. This is what the price of the car is. Everything's tech-driven on purchasing it. Simple, out the door. You pay, make your down payment. You get your car.
1: I'm at the point in my life where that's how I want to buy a car. I want to go to the lot or go to a, a showroom, have someone show me the features of the car, talk to me about it. And then I want to buy it on the computer and I want to go pick up my car or have it delivered to my house. I don't understand how these car dealers still have dealerships where they're trying to like haggle with people. Yeah, yep. Lay all those people off, get two or three people who know the products really well, product specialists, and just sell the cars direct to people. Yeah, standardized process. You
0: want the features, the car is what costs what it is. There's no finagling. Like and There make, shouldn't be any of this anymore. Yeah, make your money on the servicing. I agree i have a recommend and i don't know if you guys have done this one in the past and you may have because i'm always late to the game on on shows and music and all this stuff i'm not a good tv watcher i don't watch a lot of tv (laughs) i i have trouble like if i'm looking at netflix i don't know what to pick there's too many options i just end up usually picking nothing
2: but this is why we have the show we have recommends absolutely (laughs) uh we took a trip to hawaii i needed a show for the
0: airplane I got a recommendation from you guys, and it was a home run. I watched Ted, the first season of Ted Lasso, and I would highly recommend it for anybody out there. I can't imagine a person that would not like that show. It is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, my wife didn't get to watch it on the plane. She had other stuff that she had downloaded. But after I watched it, we went back and we finished and watched season one together. It is an amazing show. Season two is coming out. If you want a feel-good show, I highly recommend. Go, go download it and watch it.
2: So I I did the same thing. I watched it uh by myself first and then I rewatched it with my wife. She loved it as well. And for for all the listeners who aren't familiar, it's about an American college football coach who goes and coaches a Premier League soccer team in in England. Um so again, feel good. It's just a great show. Great recommends and uh glad you enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: It's real, amazing. Real quick for our loyal listeners, I know you'll probably remember 2 years ago, probably episode either somewhere between 8 through 12 both josh and i recommended the same show but good recommends Brent. <laughs> <laughs> glad, glad that you finally watched it two years later <laughs> it only took him a little
2: i'll, I'll stay on the, the show um my wife had been wanting to watch it we finally started it we're almost finished but the crown on netflix just really cool from like a, a history standpoint to learn a lot about like, the English history. I bring it up also because uh, shout-out to all the, the English out there. They're in the Euro Cup final. Um, so my recommends kind of piggybacked this weekend. Um, England plays Italy in that Euro Cup final. So something, another, another something for you to watch, Brent. Um, but The Crown on Netflix, if you are interested in kind of uh, that British history, and it ties into a lot of American history, which is cool, but really well done and a good show. Yeah, great recommends
1: today. I agree. That's a great show, The Crown. Um, Brent, you should watch that next.
0: All right, so I'll finish. I got to get uh, season two of Ted Lasso's coming out. Maybe I'll fire up the (laughs) crowd. All right, so as advisors, we love helping people. That's why we do it. You know, if you're having trouble understanding your risk tolerance, your risk capacity, how risk can affect you both in retirement or making, you know, financial decisions for major purchases or small purchases please give us a call. Don't take a risk assessment test. I don't believe that's going to be very helpful. You probably want to lean towards doing some financial planning. But if you'd like to schedule an appointment with any of us, please go to rpawealth.com. Schedule a complimentary consultation. You can also download our ebook from our website. If you'd like the show notes, please go to retirementplanplaybook.com. But as always, we love having you here and listening in. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.
1: RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor public disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide form ADV Part 2A, from brochure, and 2B, brochure supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.